Welcome to the big show. Here we are back here for another almost season two of the Brothers Trek about Discovery. As always, my name is Matt coming to you from uh, Austin and coming to you from Planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Hailing frequencies are open. And there we are. We are back here. So over the last few months, CBS All Access has decided they're going to show us some little teeny tiny versions of Star Trek Discovery, and uh, won't that whet our appetite for what season two will be? Well, if you're like me, you're like, why am I going to pay five bucks a month to watch a little 15-minute episode? Why not watch them all at one time the week before it starts? So that's what we decided to do, and we're going to make it all easy for you. So at this point, you're not even going to have to watch them, because we're going to recap them all for you right here. But of course you want to watch them, because they're good. They are good. That is true. So the first episode is called Runaway. That's the uh, Tilly episode. Now, the funny thing I thought about this episode was it really felt like this was the money-saving episode. You know what I mean? Like, there's nobody else in this except for him, or for her, and the uh, the other girl. That's and some extras. Yeah, there's a couple extras who come in after they blow up the cafeteria or whatever. But that's like it. Otherwise, it's just them alone on the, on the Discovery. Which, I mean, admittedly, the that's what the episode's about right you know her hiding this other character but it uh, it just felt like so weird and empty to me because normally we see like as we're walking through hallways we you know we're seeing five six people walking past in a hurry going somewhere carrying a thing or dragging something along the ground going what kind of uniform is that guy wearing right exactly where does he work on this ship start off with a beautiful picture of uh, the discovery right feels good to uh, return to it and get a nice good look at it uh we find ourselves uh, in the cargo hold here and everybody's leaving it's like a shift change yeah everybody's leaving so that they can decontaminate the area and then just as they do we see this little screen pop up and it says magnetic locks disengage and then we see this like transparent hand crawl out of one of the boxes and then it accidentally cuts itself and leaves a little bit of orange, orange glowing blood on the ground. Did this little character uh, open up uh, the locks by themselves? Or did somebody else do it for them? Question mark. Wow. Already the mystery has begun and we're not even like a minute into this piece. <clears throat> Cut to Tilly in her quarters talking to her mom who's in hologram form. Her mother seems to be uh, quite critical of Tilly here. Even going so far as to tell Tilly to uh, not even try to go for the, the command program. We cut down to the lounge where Tilly is uh, trying to order like a triple espresso and the computer's like, I don't know, that might be a little too much uh, caffeine for you. And she's like, shut up, caffeine is my life. <laughs> she takes her uh, espresso over to a little table and she's all by herself. Expect nothing, she says to herself. I guess her mom is starting to get to her in her head, right? That's what we think. <clears throat> And all of a sudden, this blur runs by. Tilly doesn't see it, but we do. It runs by her again, and this time she feels it blow by her. She then sees the orange blood on the floor. And then she hears it. Is it growling? What's happening? And then suddenly it drops from the ceiling and starts tearing up the joint. Foods flying out of the replicator, uh, donuts and Caesar salads and the like. Suddenly, the creature resolves itself. It's an alien woman of some kind. Tilly makes a grab for her tricorder and takes a reading of the blood. Oh, you're Zaheen, she says. Tilly remembers and says that they had somehow just managed to achieve warp. And the analysis of the blood shows this Zaheen to be uh, 18 years old or so. Tilly then moves forward, but the Zaheen hisses at her. So Tilly hisses back. <sighs> right back. Tilly starts the universal translator and says, My name is Ensign Tilly. And the Zaheen says back, in perfect basic, or English, or whatever the common language is in Star Trek, says, uh, my name is Keep Your Digits Off of Me. Okay. 
uh, keep your digits off of me says that uh, she has made a similar translator as a kid. No, Tilly says back to her, uh, yeah, obviously, but you don't know what a replicator is because you don't even know what ice cream is. This dialogue now opens up between them. Uh, we find out her name is really long, but uh, we, we call her Poe for short. And uh, she's run away from home. We find out her parents are dead. Her brother is dead. And that's all we find out before the next shift walks in. Tilly tries to cover whatever happened. Not very well as the Zaheen disappears. You can just say, yeah, there's clearly a malfunction in the replicators. Something needs to be fixed. Like, it could have been that easy. Come on, Tilly. Yeah. Uh, in her quarters, Tilly uh, is uh, running the computer through Zaheen. She's like, I know there's something going on with the Zaheen. Let's find out a bit about it. While the computer is working, we find out that uh, the Zaheen and the planet were born at the same time in their evolutionary stature. Somehow. Even Tilly doesn't quite understand the uh, scientific reasoning behind it, but the Poe says that it's true. And she also found out that they mine dilithium on that planet. Uh-oh. Suddenly, the computer comes back with, this, with its search. We find that Poe is some kind of fugitive. Orders are to keep her alive and secure. Poe then shuts down the transmission and disappears, but Tilly yells at her and she says, Come back here, young lady. Mom instincts taking over. Oh, yeah. That happens later, too. She was doing what she loved, she says. It was something her mother had told her. She had figured out how to build an incubator to recrystallize dilithium. So how does that work? Aren't there, like, many episodes in uh, Star Trek where yeah. they don't know how to recrystallize the dilithium? Kind of breaks the timeline here a little bit. Yeah, especially because... You know, we're so early, it's hard to imagine that stuff like this wouldn't be, you know, like in the same way that the telephone was invented like three times within a year, <laughs> kind of, you know, you've seen these arguments, right? Yeah. And so someone's figuring out how to recrystallize dilithium, but Montgomery Scott never figures it out. <laughs> right. Then Tilly realizes this, of course, makes you the most politically relevant planet in the galaxy between the dilithium crystal and this amazing recrystallizer. She says, my planet is my twin, and I made it for her, but no one else listened to me when I said that. We've been getting hints, as I said, we've been getting hints all along that this is all going to be tying back to Tilly and her mom somewhere, and here's where it culminates. She says, when the people who care about you don't listen to you, it's frightening, and it's lonely. And it makes you feel like you're crazy or something. I get that, she says back. Tilly then tries to fix Poe's arm. There's more dialogue here as Tilly tells Poe that she's not crazy. But her work is important and that it's just the next stage of her evolution. But then we get the message of this episode. Everyone got greedy, says Poe. Evolution is about your soul and not killing our planet so that we can have warp, she says. No one loves my twin sister like I do, and no one will care for it like me. Tilly then puts her hand on Poe's knee and says, Well, you've got your answer now, kid. Let's get you home. She's saying, You gotta go protect your planet, kid. Come on. In the transporter room, we find out that she's actually uh, about to be the coronated queen of the planet. Which, of course, would make it easier for her to be able to protect her planet. Poe then hands her a crystal from uh, the planet... And makes her way back to the transporter pad. Poe turns to her and, sa and says to Tilly, What did you mean earlier when you said that it was a mistake going into command? She said, It was something dumb I was holding on to. Transporter noises and Poe is away. And that ends that first episode. So I think we get some good, you know, character development for... Mm-hmm. For Tilly, which is fun. Yeah, I was interested, too, to if this happens before or after the episode when, um, you know, Burnham, like, starts making her run faster to get into the command program or whatever. Be curious. Yeah, so we really don't know where in the timeline this is. And uh, so that takes us into Calypso! 
which I thought was an oddly named, uh, oddly named thing for this episode. It's not like they were dancing the Calypso at the end, you know, but, uh, I don't know what this was or why it's called Calypso, but there we go. So, uh, unexpectedly, this episode starts with a, uh, Betty Boop cartoon. Who would have guessed? Uh, we hear there's a computer saying life signs are at critical levels. As we pull back, we find that this may, uh, that there's a man in this pod, and he's floating in space. And suddenly it floats by something that looks strangely like Discovery. And it turns out actually to be the Discovery, even with its 1031 and everything. It puts the man's pod into a tractor, tractor beam as we cut to black. We get flashes here. A woman, a medbay, his leg, a kid, and suddenly his eyes open. And he's upside down. So you notice here how they composite this shot, right? So it looks like he's upside down hanging in the bed, when in actuality they just flip the screen and then suddenly the shot rotates. Uh, he's right side up. But it's, you know, one of those things to kind of keep the audience off balance, right? Like, okay, what's going on? Why is this happening? Okay, oh, all right. I don't know. I don't get it all. So it's a clever little trick there that the uh, director used. It's also telling us something's not right here. He sits up and then uh, he tries to walk, but he falls over really quick. And then it seems like the computer is keeping an eye on him as he uh, pulls himself up. Or somebody watching through a security camera. We aren't sure yet. It seems more like a security it, camera because we haven't seen the computer behave this way up until right. now. So, you know, he'll make the mistake that there's a person watching him in a security camera because like, show yourself. But I think in a lot of ways we're in the same spot. We think he's being sued like there's a nurse or something in the other room, right? Watching him right, on the screen exactly. while she's eating a sandwich and drinking a coffee. <laughs> And when he says, show yourself, you know, I'll be right in. And some nurse is going to come walking in dressed in a Discovery uniform. But that's not what happens. <laughs> not at all. <clears throat> so he makes his way over to the cabinet. And it opens and he pulls out a long white instrument and spins it like it's a weapon. It really looks like he's done this before, you know. He's trying it out. It's like he can't help it. Then the lights and the shelves start to go haywire. We can still tell he's not 100%. He's not going on. He falls down again. And then suddenly, a shelf opens, revealing a jumpsuit. He puts it on and then starts to notice that there are no scars on his chest or his shoulder. But there's a big one on his leg. Suddenly, a voice from nowhere says, I left you that one, since you never had it removed. He responds, it's an old hunting injury. We find out the two names. The person behind the computer, or as it turns out to be the computer, his name is Zora. Not a discovery name we recognize, right? Right. And his name is uh, Quarrel, you know, like the old James Bond movies. Hey, Mr. Bond, you want me to take you to Crab Key? That's right, exactly. <laughs> or his son, either one. That's right, <laughs> Quarrel Jr. <laughs> yep. He'd been trying to put on the, the, the jumpsuit, but the jumpsuit was too small, so they uh, replicate him up a better-fitting one. Then there's a shot of the corridor, mostly dark. Coral asks about the escape pod, but Zora says it couldn't be fixed. But we see the lights start to come on just before where Coral is walking. He asks you, where are you taking me? Looks like it's the lounge. Coral is now eating. Zora apologizes for the lack of chef or resupply of foodstuffs. He asks about the crew, and Zora tells him that uh, they are out at present. He says, well, why don't you come out and join me? But Zora just laughs and says, oh, dear, you thought that I was alive? Hmm. Hmm. So it is a computer. Zora asks for Quarrel's name. He says, uh, he says, People don't do that where uh, where he's from, from Alcor 4, she says. He says, how do you know I'm from Alcor 4? She says, your tattoo of the owl, it's only found there. But there's no settlement as far as I can tell. Although my information is a little, da- is a little dated. <laughs> so we have it, so so far from just like a story standpoint, right? We got this, we got it, we got this short and there are no answers. We got nothing. We're not even sure this is, Coral is really this kid's name. We got Zora. Is there a computer? Is it not a computer? Is there somebody behind it? Where's the Discovery crew? What's the computer doing? Who is this guy? Where was he coming from? 
You know, and it's all slightly unsettling, right, for us us Trek fans because we usually at least know, okay, well, we got our crew, so we, we at least know what the crew's on, and the crew's going to be able to handle whatever situation they go into. But here we are in a situation where we got nothing. And the computer at one point suggests it like it's a thousand years in the future. Yeah. So you're wondering, okay, well, you know, if that's true, then, you know, at some point, We've seen derelict ships before in Star Trek, right? Right. You, you, one could imagine that someone says, well, we're going to put the old Discovery out here basically as a buoy or a sensor. You know, if we need to, we can board her and, like, download data or reconfigure sensors or whatever, but why just put it in a scrap heap when we can, you know, put it here and basically give it instructions like, if you're attacked, tell Starfleet. If you see this, tell Starfleet. You know, communicate mm-hmm. if, you know, if you see anything interesting, scientific phenomenon, whatever. And then, like, a ship goes by to go investigate science. It could just be, a, like, a buoy watching either something in particular. Like, you know, how many times does Kirk say something like, it would be interesting to stay here and watch this, you know, developer, this phenomenon happen or whatever. And yeah. they leave, and you're like... You know, what's going on? But you could also totally imagine, well, we're gonna just going to tow the, or fly the Discovery here, Parker, right. leave her and say, okay, watch the formulation of this nebula or this quasar or whatever cool thing you're watching and, you know, send your telemetry back. Just like, you know, we've got uh, Voyager out, right past Pluto now. And for a long time, it had basically gone past what we thought it was supposed to do. Uh-huh. Sending stuff back. It was cool. Maybe once every hundred years, a crew shows up, cleans her, you know, <laughs> does some upgrades and then leaves. <laughs> to the uh, interesting future. Yeah. It's, an in- it's interesting. Well, you know, there's also, I saw a piece of trivia that says this is also so far beyond anywhere else that we have, you know, we've seen before in Star Trek. Just because if it is a thousand years after Discovery, that's, we've never seen that far in the future. So who knows what's going on in the galaxy at this point? Yeah, it could be derelict because there's no more Federation. Right, yeah. And we'll never know. Fewer people are on Alcor 4 than there were, says Quarrel. He stole the ship from the, the Vidarash. Who are they? He says, but they sure did love things from long ago, including Betty Boop. What's a Betty Boop, he says. <laughs> so then, of course, the question I have is who are the Vidarash, right? And uh, why do they have Betty Boop? Where did that come from? Stolen from somewhere. So, of course, at this point now, he's changed his name to Crafty, right? That's what uh, he says the people on his thing call, in, call him, and the computer's like, because you're Crafty? What is a Betty Boop, Asks he asks. He says, you know, don't you? Because you're from long ago. How long have you been out here? A thousand years, says Zora. I spent most of my time evolving, she says. I want to see the bridge, he says. Next shot, the doors are open, and we are on the Discovery Bridge. Bridge noises! Yay! She brings up a map showing him Alcar Alcar 4. It is far. A shuttlecraft probably wouldn't make it, she says. But Discovery could. Ah. Sora says, uh, I can't. My orders were to stay here, and I must follow them. Your orders were given by a captain that's long dead. My orders are to maintain position. I want to help, she says, but I can't. So that's interesting. How do you feel about the computer, like, just deciding, like, well, my mission, I, I know it's been a thousand years probably since I've seen anybody, but this is my mission. I got to stay here. Well, so the computer's unclear, right? So we have two possible theories, or two, let's call them endpoints of theories, and you can put stuff in between. But on the one hand is the idea that the Federation is still out there, and this is a buoy or some kind of, you know, you're just supposed to monitor that way. Whatever it is. Nebula, Romulans, who knows. And the Federation is, you know, they're listening. When it sends, hey, I just saw a quasar, they're like, okay, thank you, Discovery. As, as guys today might be, you know, attempting to communicate with probes that we've sent out. I think they basically said that... Uh, you know, Voyager is no longer really functional anymore. It's too far out. It won't get enough power. But it really could be that Discovery knows the Federation is out there and relying on her to do 
whatever it is they put her there, right? She's like, I have mm-hmm. orders. You know, I can't just move. Like, and then the other extreme is there is no more Federation. That uh, Voyager only knows, you know, some previous orders and, like, has no other information to go on. Is it safe to move? Is that okay? Whereas, you know, theoretically, you know, she could just be following the thousand-year-old instructions. On the other hand, she could, like, she could totally be aware. No, no, there's, like, a whole team of people who are watching what I got going on here. I mean, that's totally true, yeah. It sort of feels like it's, like, it's meant to be, like, desolate, like she's been stuck out here for so long. Yeah, and and I think from her, you know, if, if you were on... Uh, you know, Voyager again, you might go, well, this is a crazy old 70s, you know, thing I'm stuck on. It's old. Uh, you know, it's icy. It's, I haven't seen people in, boy, that would be what, 45 years, you know. Yep. Something long. So is that what they've said now, that the Voyager's pretty much out of power and isn't going to be able to do much of anything? Yeah, so it's got it's it, they put it into a low energy mode, as I recall. Uh huh. So, I guess you know they they could power it back up to take photos or <clears throat> record something, but it's so far out that like it it couldn't get solar power. Oh wow! Because the the sun would be so tiny. Yeah, that's true. All right, so uh, we see him now lying in a hammock in the uh, transporter room. We see a pic of his son, who he says now must be 11. Then we get a uh, montage of a montage on top of a montage. Him eating, working out, smelling waffles, chess against the computer, Taco Tuesday. Zora then pulls out her favorite movie and projects it as a hologram. It's funny face with a stare and Hepburn. (laughs) It's hilarious. (laughs) Zora hums along. And uh, now he's down in the lounge wearing a disco t-shirt. Zora asks... This, by the way, was the first time I really knew that it was Discovery. Because once they had kind of reset our expectations, Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I don't even know where we're at anymore. We we could be on a different ship. You know, it could be that he gets rescued by the Discovery crew. I mean, who knows, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So once he's wearing the disco shirt, like, I'm okay. Now I know what's going on. Although, I have to wonder, like, how that ship survived, that shirt would survive a thousand years. It's not like... They, well, maybe... It's not like they break Maybe she into, replicated him one. Could be, could be. It's yeah. not like, you know, you're going to break into King Touch 2 and go, Hey, we can just, like, wear these clothes out back to the desert. We'll look, we'll look styling. Yeah, we will. We'll be all tattered. Coming well, apart. maybe if they were gold-plated or something. Uh, Zora decides to ask him um, if he were home, what would he be doing? He uh, basically describes a day at the beach, and then Zora pulls out uh, the sound of waves. He describes the waves a little more specifically to his home, and she not only not adds the new sounds, but adjusts the lighting to make it look like a blue wave. He then des- describes the sound of a bird's, which she then replicates. You're a good woman. He says, always doing nice things for me. Anyone ever do nice things for you? It never came up, she says. So uh, he takes the time to learn the Fred Astaire dance. She even replicates a tux for him. On the bridge, he tells her to bring forth his leading lady, and it replicates Audrey Hepburn. He says, no, 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 I want you. She says, but he's, uh, but she's never been a person, she says. I have no face, no body. Right, exactly. He says, you do in my imagination, and I'm sure you do in yours, too. And then she appears, and they dance. And then they are just about to kiss. And just about they kiss, we get a flashback of his son and his wife. He pulls away. Zora pleads with him. "Uh, You weren't doing anything wrong. It doesn't mean anything. Liar, he says. And she exits as her dancing avatar cries. Aww. It's getting a little emotional here, folks. <laughs> Back in the hammock, hanging in the transporter room, Zora wakes him and says he's needed in sickbay. He goes down there where she replicates a new uniform for him. You've kept them waiting long enough, she says. 
Now they're down in the cargo hold with the shuttlecraft. He comes out to say goodbye to Zora. You saved my life, and you reminded me of what it is to be human. She says, no poignant ironies. He climbs aboard the shuttlecraft. But just before the doors close, she asks, if they had been lovers on his world, would he tell her his name? And he replies, if we had been lovers, you would have given me my name. To which she replies, oh, well then I already have. And as he boards the ship, the doors close and the shuttlecraft's name, funny face. <laughs> Can you and imagine as, like, bumping into the USS funny face? <laughs> you're like uh shuttlecraft can we get your uh can we get your ship name please uh yes well they'd probably like him a transponder uh, right <laughs> right so it's uh, at some point they'd be like uh, uh we're tracking a shuttle it is the uss funny face <laughs> shuttlecraft from the discovery <laughs> what <laughs> wait weren't uh those ships named after and i don't know what the naming scheme is for the shuttles on discovery but birds or cities or discoverers or scientists or philosophers right. or poets probably not Fred Astaire movies <laughs> probably not well at least she was able to change one part of her programming there you go uh, the next one is going to be the USS Pulp Fiction that'll be really great <laughs> so I thought this was very creative right they really okay. kind of got outside of the box a little bit here and gave us a story that wasn't what you might have expected right yeah totally it's a a new situation new environment new characters very very interesting i thought this is one of the neat things you could do with these little shorts yeah again it was like like i jokingly referred to this is a pretty emotional episode you know for a uh for something so star trekky you know it's not an adventure it's not a it's one of those like oh my gosh wow that's like heartbreaking almost it's really great. Oh, hey, so here we go. I've got uh, the answer to why this is named Calypso. I had it in my notes and didn't even know it. Uh, the title refers to Calypso, a nymph in Homer's Odyssey. She rescues the shipwrecked Odysseus and keeps him on her island for seven years, enchanting him with her singing. However, he yearns for his wife Penelope so strongly that the gods order Calypso to release him. Despite her sorrow, he complies and gives him supplies for his voyage. In addition, the name of the craft may be another allusion to the Odyssey, as Odysseus is frequently referred to as Crafty Odysseus. True. Dun, dun, dun. So there you go. Oh, we forgot to mention, too, though, the last shot of this episode is uh, as the shuttlecraft flies off, the computer has them dancing throughout the, uh, throughout the uh, cargo area. So that was pretty sweet. That is that one. That was a. Yeah, I, I thought that was a really good episode too. I really enjoyed lots, of, uh, lots of that. It's again, it's kind of expanding. You know, we, they've been talking about this obviously a lot with you know the the Star Wars movies and the, the the standalone movies and how that can really expand the kinds of stories that they can tell in the Star Wars universe. I think that when they originally set out to make Rogue One, they were calling it a war movie in the Star Wars universe and what they ended up actually making it is a lot more closer to Star Wars than they were expecting. So maybe they've shortened or crowded that definition of what can be a a Star Wars story. But I think with these little treks like this, you start to grow the language that is Star Trek so that you can really start opening up the world to tell more stories, which I think discovery kind of already did in the first place, but this, a little story like this definitely helps. All right, on to our next one, which is The Brightest Star. This is going to be uh, Saru's story. This one starts uh, Saru on his home planet. I was like, what is the name of his home planet? Is it Kelpia? But no, it's actually in the description of this episode. It's called Kaminar. In the voiceover, he starts to tell a story about how his home world is different from other worlds. When the harvest comes, his people willingly walk to their deaths. We hear something bellowing in the background uh, behind most of this opening opening voiceover. Uh, is it a creature? Is it a starship? We don't know. 
So already, where what are we, like a minute and a half into this first episode, and we've already got so many questions, right? What's the harvest? What's that noise? I mean, we know that Kelpians are fearful for the most part and sense death is coming, as we've always heard. But, you know, why are they so willing to walk to their deaths as opposed to, you know, protect themselves? All these questions, most of which get answered. We see that Saru has a sister. And uh, we see six or eight of these people walk, uh, of his people, the Kelpians, walk toward a giant crystal of sorts. Uh, Six or eight of them sit around it. And then they disappear. The priest is left alone. We find out in the next scene that the priest is Saru's father, and he has something with him. It fell out of the bowel ship, as such pieces often do. Well, that's weird. So we we know there's a ship. The priest knows there's a ship. Uh, We know it's a piece of technology that they're not supposed to uh, deal with or play with. Why are pieces falling off of the ship? That's another question. What is happening? Yeah, you wonder, like, what what do they send that, like, falls apart? Right, yeah, exactly. His father tells Saru to get rid of that piece, and because uh, you know that keeping it is forbidden. Saru begins to question his father and even the existence of the Kelpians, like, what are they doing? Saru asks, what is beyond the sky? What if there are other beings beyond the sky? And, of course, his father gives the age-old answer of, well, if... Kelpians were meant to fly. They would have given us wings. More questions from Saru, and his father doesn't appreciate it. Why do we sac- sacrifice ourselves to the bow instead of uh, asking to be more like them? His father ends the discussion by slamming his hand on the table. He says, the balance must not be ups- upset. Uh, we are to sacrifice so that there is a peace. One day you will understand as I, he says. Now, this is interesting because it sounds like his father knows more than he's saying, right? We sort of get this idea that there is some other sort of race of people living above the the planet who are taking the Kelpians for whatever reason. They're eating them or they're using them for slave labor or whatever it is. And uh, it almost gives the feeling like, it's to make sure there's no war or, you know, cause the Kelpians obviously aren't going to be, they're not going to fight anyway. So, but that's almost what it feels like. Right. So there's an episode of next generation in which there's like a, a totally, uh, pacifistic character. I guess Picard gets trapped in a cage somewhere. And like one of the persons he's supposed to work with is this total pacifist dude. So the, the Kelpians kind of remind me of that in that sense. Well, I have more questions about this later, but we'll get, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, we see Saru take the piece of the bow ship, and he starts to take it apart. And then he gets it working and somehow turns it into a transmitter and sends a message to the cosmos. The next morning, Saru and his sister are working in a field. Saru just scans the skies. He awaits an answer to his hail, and then days pass. It almost feels like weeks pass. Then the machine comes alive. It says slash hello Saru asks his father uh, what would happen if he was chosen next for the harvest his father hesitates and says then you should be happy that you were chosen by the watchful eye to maintain balance also notice at this point his his sister has stayed silent the whole time she's watched him stare at the skies she's watched him debate his father and yet she has said nothing at this point Saru just stares back at his father Cut to the next scene where we hear him in voiceover say, how could this life be enough for them? To wait to be taken away? Which you've got to think would be sort of, you know, compromising to the evolutionary status of right. these people, right? They've got, if they've got no other reason to go on, they've got no other reason to live. Oh, well, we're eventually going to get taken up by the bow anyway, so let's just do it. <clears throat> he then receives uh, a message, another message. It says, slash today. Cut to he and his sister out walking in the forest. She says uh, she's a little scared now and wants to head back. Saru uh, tells her she probably should and that he wants to go and watch the stars. She hands him a knife and says, you should look down every once in a while because there is beauty there too. Stay safe, he tells her. It's almost like a goodbye. It is, yeah, it feels like a... Yeah, he's definitely saying goodbye to her. And uh, off he goes. He climbs to the highest peak on the planet. 
We then see a shuttlecraft, and it lands. And out walks Lieutenant Georgiou. Ooh. Over the translator, they speak to each other. Uh, we find out that, of course, this was technology that the Kelpians do not have. And he somehow managed to turn it into a beacon. High praise he gets from Lieutenant Georgiou. She tells him that uh, he will never be allowed to come back home if he were to leave with her. Are you prepared for that, Mr. Saru? She says. My place is no longer here, he says, after a long look back on his village. Then in voiceover, he says, I saw hope in the sky, and it was greater than my fear. We then cut to a shot of his sister and the shuttlecraft disappearing, and the episode ends. One thing I did forget to write down in that piece of dialogue, too, was that, you know, Giorgio basically says, like, she can't help the planet. Like, whatever's going on is sort of like, which is weird to me because I sort of feel like this has been in, like, maybe an episode of Next Generation or something where some sort of more powerful, you know, extraterrestrial presence is. And again, we don't know what the Ba'ul is, so it's hard to say anyway, I guess. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, some extra is is keeping a planet down it seems like that would be the kind of thing that the federation would step in and say nay to although i guess at the time you know uh what the federation's where where their mandates are maybe are not quite as you know well-rounded by the time they get to uh next generation by then they're like maybe we've seen this one too many times after all remember what happened to the kelpians or something right I think it's more a case of like uh, we've we've seen episodes like in Next Generation where uh, you had like the drug episode where the, they had the symbiotic relationship, but you know like they needed one planet made everything and the other one provided medicine, but it was actually a narcotic. I vaguely remember that one. <laughs> yeah, so I mean. But, like, so Dr. Crusher wants to intervene, and Picard's like, no, we can't, the Prime Directive. All right. So, I mean, it could be something here, that these two species have this relationship, and the powers that be are interpreting the Prime Directive to mean, you know, we're not going to mess with that. Very fair, very fair. So, uh, there was an interview with Doug Jones, who plays Saru, of course, and The Hollywood Reporter. He says, uh... When talking about it in season one, I pictured it more of like uh, cattle being herded, more of like a farming situation that uh, my people went along with, which I didn't necessarily see it that way, but I definitely saw as it more of like a slave situation, you know, where they were just like his people weren't going to fight back. They were just, you know, docile and I guess like cattle, but that they were more like as opposed to this then interesting situation, which he goes on to say, I looked at the brightest star script and I saw it as a much more ritualistic. That was a bit of a surprise to me, but a good one. And it makes sense. We're sentient beings. We're smart. We're imaginative and emotional beings that connect, can connect and have families. So it would make sense that we would not act like cattle. We accept the ritualistic religious aspects that there's this great balance to be had and that we are a part of it, which I thought was easy. On to the next episode, The Escape Artist, starring everyone's favorite bad guy, Harry Harcourt, Mud. Da, da, da. So it starts with Mud getting tossed to the floor. Uh, he's being paid for by uh, a female bounty hunter to another character. We find out quickly that that's a Tellarite. Mud tries to pay his way uh, out of it, but it doesn't work. The other alien just beams out. We are left with a snarling pig-like humanoid. The Tellarite, which is funny because we were just watching Journey to Babel and we were like, well, how cool it would be if we were to see like a modern version of a Tellarite. And sure enough, here we are. We get one, sunken eyes and everything. He says to Mud, I never thought I'd, I bet you never thought you'd see this face again, he says. But Mud doesn't recognize him. So he says, Crit, the alien's name is, says that Mud had slept with his sister and stole their family heirloom a cudgel. Well, Mud feigns ignorance. <laughs> Mud feigns ignorance. Well, I assume he's feigning ignorance anyway. He tries to talk to Mr. Crit into believing that he's uh, not the human that he is looking for. But then Crit brings up a pad with Mud's face on it. Reading from his wanted poster, we, he- we hear that he is wanted for 30 counts of smuggling, 20 counts 
of attempted homicide, a few other things, and finally one count of penetrating a space whale. Uh, you <laughs> kinda had to be there, says Mud. Crit tells him that the Federation has put a bounty on his head of a hundred thousand credits, and he is delighted to be the one to profit from it. Mud again, trying to talk his way out of it, but Crick is not having any of it. He says that he probably knows this is the first... He says he knows that this probably isn't the first time since Mud has tried to escape from something like this. Mud, of course, denies that he's ever been in a situation like this. And then we get a flashback of Voke kicking Mud's head in. Crit kicks him now and tells him to shut up and sits down. Mud changes his story, saying, Oh, yes, I do remember uh, you, and I do remember your sister. And he goes on to talk about the secret affair that he had. Her tusks, her protruding tusks, touching my face. <laughs> he says, I stole the cudgel as a memory of the secret affair. He now tries to claim to be part of the resistance against the uh, Empire. I mean, the uh, Federation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working Sorry. with... With Princess Leia. Right, exactly. We're the resistance against the First Order. Uh, he then tries to tell Crit, no, we're similar. We both work on the fringes. It doesn't work, and Crit, Crit laughs at him, asking if this line has ever worked on anybody. Flashback again. Mud trying to use this line on a small Klingon. It doesn't work on her either. Or his line about her beauty. That didn't work either. We cut back to Crit's ship. And Mud is telling him uh, the story of the Klingon. Crit says, but I heard you were supposed to be rich. But Mud plays it off saying that, oh, it's all gone to Federation taxes. I'm the poorest man you know, he says. Cut to Mud imprisoned somewhere saying, I am the richest man you know. Let me out and I'll reward you. This time he's talking to an Orion slave trader. Mud claims to have, uh, have a ton of latinum. Uh, he piles on the virtues of being rich. The Orion starts to come around when suddenly a female Orion walks in and tells her fellow Orion that there are cameras in here. Dummy. <laughs> You're dismissed, she says, and off he goes. Mud now tries to seduce her, but this only enrages her, and she throws a stun weapon onto him. Back onto Crit's ship, we, uh, we find we've come out of warp, and he hails the Federation ship. Mud yells, No! He makes a uh, secret attempt for his knife in the boot. He makes a secret attempt for the knife he has hiding in his boot, but Crit sees through it and pulls his weapon on him. Mud throws it away. Mud then says, I'll beg. I'll beg. Is that what you want? He offers to go home with Crit. I'll polish your tusks. Your tusks. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll braid your beard. I'll clean this ship. Just don't hand me over to them. Crit then says, two to beam over. We are now on the Demilo. And the officer just says, ugh, at seeing mud. Follow me. The officer then takes, to a, takes them to a room. And he tells Crit that he has been duped. This is an android dressed with mud. He's only an, it's he's only an android, right? I guess then Harry's now already found the planet of ad androids for my mud. Is that what we're supposed to figure out? Which is funny, also speaking of iMud, he's also wearing the, uh, the pellets, the gold pellets and the blue suit from that episode as well. One of the uh, robots is. Right after this, we see another ship. Many more muds are working the ship. A jipper is brought over to the female bonnie hunter that we saw early on. She takes off her mask only to reveal that it is in fact the real Harry Mud. Another transmission comes over for someone looking for mud. He offers them 50,000 credits for them. And he also offers... And by the way, <laughs> would you like a deal on a Yeah. <laughs> and we're done. That's another episode out of the way. You know, it's funny because I did find myself wondering from the beginning why the bounty hunter, if there was a $100,000, you know, uh, bounty out on mud, then why was this other female bounty hunter giving him up so easily? for obviously less the price right but now we know why answers are made a couple of interesting behind the scene points here 
Uh, this is the third Tellarite that Harry Judge, the actor, has played. He had previously, That's yep, he has previously played a Tellarite Admiral Gork, and his mere counterpart on several episodes of Star Trek Discovery. So there we go. When asked whether or not the audience had ever seen the real Harry Mudd, Rain Wilson says to SciFi.com. I think we've been seeing the real Harry Mudd all throughout. We certainly see him at the end of this episode. But I think it would be fun to have future episodes where you don't know for sure whether or not you're seeing the real Mudd or duplicate, duplicate Mudd, and he's just running around the universe. That would be really fun, he says. Memory Alpha also tells us this, that the accusation of penetrating a space whale places the events after uh, of the short after uh, the Discovery episode right. magic to make the sanest man go mad. <clears throat> Also, an Andorian space helmet used by Mud in that episode is also present on the ship at the end of the episode. So that's fun. That's great. Anything else you want to say about that episode? I mean, besides it being fun? Well, it was fun. Yeah. I think it's probably one of our... You know, like the Tilly episode, it's about developing the character. Yep. It's about giving us some additional knowledge, some additional sense, without necessarily being able to work it into a... Uh, in a proper episode, yeah. which is cool. It's cool that they could do that. So I yeah, enjoyed it. No, it was a lot of fun. I thought all of them were really good. Uh, like I said, they've just, they kind of just open up the world a little bit more. They also, you know, start showing us the kind of diverse storytelling that can happen. Interestingly enough, they're going to be uh, two more short treks after the season ends, and they're both going to be animated. So uh, we'll have to see. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. So we'll have to see. Again, it was just a. Uh, uh, Oh, who's the showrunner? The new showrunner? Alec Kurtzman. Alex Kurtzman also says that the, the other great thing about it is that uh, making them animated is it's a great way to tell a story on a much short, lower budget. So, yeah. Yeah. So that'll be fun. Um, I was watching some of the shorts that were on CBS Access, and uh, I, I found this quote of Anson Mount, the, the guy who's playing Pike this season, right? It also showed some clips from that, plus some of the clips that we have in the trailer. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it, but because I'm going to talk about a part of it right now. But he says of the character, I know that this crew has just had a captain that they learned they couldn't trust. So here's Pike having to walk in and fight that wall and overcome it. You know, he really wants to get the, the crew behind him. And so then you start watching these different scenes from the trailer and everything else. And this Pike seems much more of a charmer. You know what I mean? He right. seems much more of a Kirk type. But it's funny because if you remember when we were when we watched the cage. Now again, this is only one episode, one little part of you know Christopher Pike, and we may not know the rest. Of course, he's also dealing with you know the aftermath of a uh, what happened on Rigel Seven. <laughs> yes, exactly. What happened on Rigel Seven, and you know the burdens of command are all on top of him. But he was a much more serious captain. You know what I mean? I even said in in our talk of the in the cage episode that he's like he just doesn't have the the warmth that Kirk has, you know, Kirk's like Shatner's always like smiling his way through a line or, you right. know, like throwing off these little jokey things, but that didn't seem like the Chris Pike that we saw in the cage. So it's interesting that I, that I think that there's sort of that new spin on this character, but I guess we'll see a couple of other quick points here because I've also been going back and listening to our, uh, as well, you should listeners go back and listening to our recaps of the discovery episodes. So in uh, episode two, where we're watching uh, the battle on binary stars, you said that the biggest difference between Burnham and Spock when it comes to Sarek is that Spock is supposed to be uh, is supposed to be Vulcan, right? And so the question of whether he is fully going Vulcan or whether or not he's going to let his you know emotional things is part of what makes that static between him and Sarek so difficult. Whereas with Burnham, at least he already knows like she's human and you know. She's not even really trying to be Vulcan. So I thought that was interesting. And it would be much more interesting because you also predicted at one point, you're like, maybe it would be cool too if we see a very young Spock show up and we really get to see how that dynamic works between those two characters and then maybe all three of them with Sarek involved too. So that'll be a really fun thing to see evolve in this season is that storyline. The one thing that I got right, which I thought was funny too, is that I, I somehow predicted that Lorca had sinister uses for Burnham. Little did I know how sinister those uses would be. 
because obviously I had no idea the mirror universe thing was coming or that uh, that's where he'd end up to be from. So, so that's cool. Just a couple of fun things I, uh, I, I found while re-listening to those episodes. I think that's good. Uh, I can't wait for next week. I can't wait to start a new season. Uh, as always, I've got some great behind-the-scenes stuff that I've already started collecting. Some quotes there from uh, Alex Kurtzman about uh, not only the season, but um, you know his idea of what Star Trek is as well. So that'll be fun. Anything else you want to say about anything going into the season? I really liked the shorts. I think they were a very creative way to to keep us interested in Star Trek and Discovery and yep. uh, to develop a little bit of character, especially Saru. We learned a lot about his backstory. That was a great uh, you know, thing to do. Other than going yep. back to his planet, there'd be really no way to get that kind of knowledge. Maybe flashbacks, yep. but Star Trek isn't super... Or flash, well, Discovery's more flashbacky than That's true. previous tracks. But this was this was good, right? You, you're yep. just telling a story. And then Tilly and and of course, mud. Yes, always, always great. Hope there's more mud. <clears throat> people like cool, the mud. Well, <laughs> people do. People love the mud. <laughs> well, that's it uh, for this week, folks. Uh, join us next week when we'll be getting to Discovery. Exactly when that episode will drop, I can't answer for you right now. But hopefully, we'll get on a regular schedule with them. I know that they are dropping every the episodes themselves on All Access are dropping on Thursday. So again, what that means for our episodes, I don't know, but we're excited. As always, follow us on the uh, Facebooks, follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. We even have our own website, thebrotherstrekabout.com. So come to any of those places, join us in the conversation, and uh, have some fun. As always, my name is Matt saying goodbye, and from Houston is my brother Ken. Say goodbye. Live long and prosper. There we go, and we'll see you all next week. (laughs) 